Welcome to Purdy's Podcast. So today we're discussing how New York City became the headquarters of the United Nations. Let's get started. Welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be studying the selection of New York City as the location and headquarters of the United Nations. Rather than lecture on this subject, I'm typing up these notes to save us time in class and also because they might serve as a handy reference to you. This topic fascinates me. I always just took for granted that New York City and certainly the United States were the obvious choice for the location of the United Nations. I should know better than to take anything in history for granted. And as scholars, we always look through a glass darkly. Prelude, the League of Nations and the failure of the, quote, spirit of Geneva. The First World War, then called the Great War, destroyed much of Europe, resulting in the death of millions and crushed the confidence of Europeans, who until 1914 had seen civilization always improving, modernizing, becoming more just and ethical, no longer. The terrors of gas attacks being submarined at sea or bombed and strafed from the air these new realities killed much of Europe's faith in its societies and their ability to keep a shaky post-war peace. One of the main parts of the Treaty of Versailles was the creation of a League of Nations that would help to guarantee there would not be another world war. Geneva, Switzerland was chosen because it's right smack in the middle of Europe, and Europe was still where all the power and action was then. Further, Switzerland zealously maintained its neutrality and still does today. One thing we don't have to be neutral about is rooting for Roger Federer, um, Swiss legend and UN Goodwill ambassador, but sadly he's retired now from tennis. Just don't root for Djokovic. American President Woodrow Wilson, after the First World War, insisted in his negotiations with British Prime Minister Lloyd George and President Georges Clemenceau of France that a League, be, that a league of Nations be created. Then, in a bitter irony, the United States refused to join. The Senate, which, as you know, is required to approve foreign treaties as part of its powers under Article I of the Constitution, was controlled by the Republicans. And Majority Leader Henry Cabot Lodge didn't want to saddle the United States with foreign obligations. Remember, class, that in President Washington's farewell address, written by Alexander Hamilton, Washington warned his country against entangling alliances with foreign countries. Lodge took this warning to heart. Also, he wanted to embarrass President Wilson, his political enemy, and weaken him for the 1920 election. So, the United States never joined the League of Nations, and this is one of the main reasons the U.S. was on the sidelines as Japan attacked China, the Germans gobbled up Austria and Czechoslovakia, and Italy savaged Ethiopia with a campaign of conquest that saw poison gas used against civilians, all in the 1930s. The U.S., which after the First World War was the world's largest and strongest economic power and also strongest potential military power, could take no action in the League because it had never joined. Britain and France tried ineffectually to keep the peace in the League, but they were exhausted from World War I and just as scared of communist Russia as they were of Herr Hitler in Nazi Germany. And so the war came. World War II was not the League of Nations' fault. As Winston Churchill said in 1946, after World War II, the League did not fail because of its principles or conceptions. It failed because those principles were deserted by those states which brought it into being. 
The League of Nations was known between the two world, world wars for the spirit of Geneva, a willingness to work for peace in the Brotherhood of Nations. After World War II, after the atomic bombs were dropped by the United States and the horrific death camps in Germany were liberated, after soldiers came home maimed or did not come home at all, the spirit of Geneva became a sad joke. Geneva was never, accordingly, a serious contender to be the headquarters of the new United Nations. The question remains, could peace have been kept if the League had been placed in New York City in 1920? It's a what-if question that is not asked often, and I do wonder, but back to what actually happened when we returned to Purdy's podcast. You're back on with Purdy's podcast. Now, potential sites for the United Nations headquarters after the Second World War were considered in the late in the mid-1940s, 1945, 1946. As World War II was winding down, the Allies, the United States, Great Britain, Soviet Union, and to a lesser extent, nationalist China under Chiang Kai-shek and newly freed France were working hard to plan the new world order. President Roosevelt hoped that the United Nations would be a beefed-up, stronger version of the League of Nations. And remember, this is before the Cold War. So FDR assumed the Allies could act as the policemen of the world, each assuming regional duties. In 1944, FDR told his Secretary of State that his top preferred picks for the United Nations headquarters would be somewhere in the, Uni in the Hawaiian Islands, in Hawaii, or the Azores Islands. FDR was in terrible health all through his third term, and none of the leaders of the Democratic Party thought he'd live through a fourth term. They were right. He died in April 1945, just a month after he was sworn in for his fourth term, and Vice President Harry S. Truman took over. All of a sudden, it didn't matter where FDR had wanted the UN to be. He was dead. In 1945, the United States and Soviet Union were in agreement that the future United Nations headquarters would be in the United States. Great Britain and France assumed that the UN would go in Geneva again, or London, but the rest of the world was not willing to allow Europe a second bite of the apple in leading international diplomacy. As one observer put it, Europe, storm center of the world, is not the logical center for the peace center of the world. Somewhere in the US, or possibly Canada, would go the new UN. Now, the first leading contenders in the United States in those days are listed below. Rapid City in the Black Hills of South Dakota. It had a lot of local support. There was a growing tourism industry centered on Mount Rushmore, and former President Calvin Coolidge had summered there. He used to be more of a big deal in the 1920s and into the 1940s. He'd only been president 20 years before, from 1923 to 1928. This idea generated a lot of interest in the Dakotas, but the feds in Washington, D.C. killed the idea quickly. As a July 1945 State Department memo explained, the site was just too far away from any important urban center. Detroit, which was already called the Motor City because so many cars were manufactured there. It's right on the U.S.-Canada border and home to lots of war industries that were converting to peaceful uses, like making all kinds of consumer products. Just think about it. Hardly anyone had a refrigerator before World War II, and then by the 50s, every house seemingly had one. Detroit planned to build on Belle Isle, which is still a popular park. 
San Francisco. The city's mayor then was Ralph Latham, Latham, and he was a big fan. He was a big friend of the Democratic administrations, both FDR and Truman. San Francisco had plenty of hotel rooms, a beautiful new opera house. The Golden Gate Bridge was not even a decade old yet. And most importantly, America's focus in World War II was about to shift from Europe to Japan. Placing the UN on the Pacific coast would match that shift in attention. And the Soviets were very open to the idea. San Fran planned to place the UN either on Twin Peaks uh, with great views all around. I used to live in the Mission District down the hill from there. Um, The Mission has the best weather in the city. Or San Francisco would place the UN at Strawberry Point. And there were plans to have a court of flags and other features that were largely adopted in New York City later on. The UN first met in San Francisco. And there's a picture here um, on page four of the letter. So it was assumed it would be the first headquarters in general. Also below is a victory of San Francisco on Victory Over Japan Day in September 1945. Philadelphia was another choice, a possibility. The big pretzel city, the birthplace of the major documents of American history, namely the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, The United States thought the UN would work best if it was modeled on American democracy. Further, Philly's mayor thought building all the stuff necessary for the UN would lift Philadelphia from its lethargy. And my family was from Philly. They would have eaten this up. Fifth, a Canadian site. Major contenders were Saint-Saint-Marie and Niagara Falls, which is right on the border of the United States and Canada. Chicago, it's a railroad crossroads, and at the time was the second largest city in the United States. However, Poland was a huge and difficult problem between the Soviet Union and the United States, and Chicago had a large Polish-American immigrant population. So the international community was shy to put the UN where they might be such potentially might be such potential controversy. And then Geneva was still hanging in there. I have a picture of them on this page. They still thought they had a shot. The picture is, is of La... Le Palais des Nations, vue sur la ville et le Mont Blanc. Now, I typed above that the British and the French were behind Geneva, and Geneva's friends pointed out that 28 countries' capital cities are within 2,000 miles of Geneva. No national capitals are within 2,000 miles of San Francisco. Warsaw, Poland, another possible choice, and a sentimental one, as it had been destroyed in the war, uh, was kind of ruled out by the Soviets. They feared placing the UN there would block their control over Poland. Australia and other former British colonies ended up supporting placing the UN in the United States, and this was decisive. There were some secondary contenders for the UN headquarters. Now here's what they were. New York City and Boston weren't on the list for the main contenders, as you might note from reading above and listening to the podcast. They ended up being the two strongest contenders, but they just didn't start out that way, but they picked up steam. Boston revved up their promotional campaign in the 40s. This was a city, the Bostonians said, that tied old England to new England, symbolizing the new Anglo-American partnership. And the city, it was the city nearest geographically to Europe in the United States. And if Boston wasn't acceptable, Newport, Rhode Island was always a local alternative. Uh, One of the historians of this topic, 
there's an interesting story of Ben Choate, the chief of the Choctaw Tribe Nation in Oklahoma, who made a compelling argument in 1945 for the UN to be located in Native American country, specifically on Choctaw land at Tuscahoma, the former capital of the tribe. Beyond the symbolic value of returning power and prestige to the First Nations, Choate pointed out that Oklahoma had a central geographic position in the United States, which is pretty interesting. St. Louis, and I've got a political cartoon of St. Louis, um, the actual saint pushing this idea, argued that St. Louis is the gateway to the West. It's in the middle of the country. It was the eight eight largest city in the country in 1940. It was bigger than it is now and really packed some punch. New Orleans was another Mississippi River metropolis that one of the UN and its backers. Uh, its backers explained that New Orleans connected the United States to Latin America through the Gulf of Mexico and to the Pacific through the Panama Canal. New Orleans barely lost out to San Francisco for the 1915 Pan Pacific Exposition and considered it sen- itself then and now as a global city. And European travelers, travelers often remark on how European the city looks, especially the French Quarter. Denver was booming in the 1940s, and all sorts of federal infrastructure was growing. The city sold itself as the capital of the Rockies. For its United Nations pitch, Denver's team argued that their city was safe from all sorts of natural disasters, like hurricanes and earthquakes. Perhaps surprising to the modern reader, Denver also connected its civic past to the original Spanish explorers who claimed the area for Spain centuries before. Denver, the city leader said, was connected in history and heritage to the rest of Latin America. Hmm. Well, the United States, many cities are having their say. When we return to Purdy's podcast, we'll see how New York was able to pull out into the lead. You're back on with Purdy's podcast. New York and Boston step into the lead. Once the British figured out the UN would not be placed in London or anywhere in Europe or even in Canada, they cut their losses. Great Britain's Minister of State, Philip Noel Baker, worked behind the scenes to ensure the headquarters would be on the eastern seaboard, either Boston or New York, preferably. The site the British pressed should be close enough for diplomats to take advantage of a major city's amenities, but far enough away so that it wouldn't just merge into the city. Baker said, Quote, all members should be able to feel quite at home, whatever their racial origin or the character of their state. Great Britain, Australia, and India pointed out the problems of racial discrimination in the United States and agreed privately with other allies, most notably Ethiopia, Liberia, and Haiti, that the headquarters would not be located in any of the states of the South. This was all about racial discrimination and the UN countries wanting to avoid diplomats of color from being discriminated against in the Jim Crow segregationist South. The headquarters committee did not report this fact fully to the press, not wanting to offend white Southerners, and stated that the reason the headquarters locations were being restricted to the Northeast was simply because it was closest geographically to Europe. This fact is underreported in the literature. It's not in any of the major textbooks. I wish I knew why. It's an excellent example of progressive attitudes from foreign countries judging white American racism harshly and acting against white supremacy. It's not talked about enough in American classrooms, 
but world opinion shaped American attitudes on race relations and helped push the civil rights movement forward. This is why Dr. King was so warmly received and welcomed and embraced when accepting the Nobel Prize in Oslo, Norway in 1964. So, New Orleans was out of the running, along with Miami, Florida, and Jacksonville, Florida, and even Charlottesville, Virginia, home of the University of Virginia, all ruled out. Paul Hasluck, Australia's representative on the UN Headquarters Committee, explained, quote, We have a United Nations, which is going to have in its membership at least two pure African delegates. Delegations, Liberia and Ethiopia, and Haiti. We have delegations which will come from Asiatic countries. We have delegations which will come from India. And I think if any delegate traveling to or from the headquarters is going to be subjected to humiliation or discrimination, we have put the headquarters in an unsuitable place. So New York and Boston, it was. It came down to these two cities. The UN headquarters now cast its committee, the the committee cast its eye on New York and Boston, but not in the cities themselves. Uh, They didn't want the headquarters to be buried in the city. Their parameters were clear. The headquarters should be at least 25 miles from the city center, but no more than 60 miles away. The diplomats wanted excellent schools, hospitals, and medical centers, cultural venues, and the best weather, if at all possible. Nothing but the best for the new leaders of the world. Class, lots of different suburbs and towns from Walden, Massachusetts, and Concord, Massachusetts, to Westchester, New York, and Greenwich, Connecticut, even Princeton, New Jersey, made their bids for the new headquarters. But lo, they ran up against what we still all the time call today NIMBY, not in my backyard. Those lovely little suburbs didn't want the traffic, noise, higher taxes, and hassle that would come with such a huge new commitment. When hard work needs to be done for the public good, often it's the major cities, their ambitious mayors, already built infrastructure, rafts of legislators' votes, and muscular sensibilities that drive a plan forward. And in this case, Gotham was the green fuse that drove through the flower of the United Nations. N-Y-C. So New York City wins. While Boston, Philly, and even San Francisco, with a last gasp effort, tried to persuade the UN committee, New York City pulled inexorably into the lead. Why? Some of the most powerful men in New York City, including Robert Moses, who was responsible for having much of New York City's public infrastructure built in this period, and Nelson Rockefeller, future governor of New York and vice president of the United States, hatched a plan. Rockefeller and his dad agreed that the ideal location for the new UN was along the East River from 42nd to 48th Street. The Rockefellers bought the land for $8.5 million and gifted it to the UN. Nearly all of the countries in the UN were ecstatic and seized the chance to place the UN in New York City. Exceptions were the Arab League, led by Egypt, and Australia, which still won in San Francisco. But too bad, so sad, New York had won. And there's a picture of the UN building constructed in 1952. And that's how New York became the headquarters of the United Nations. Thank you so much for joining me on Purdy's podcast, and we'll see you in our next episode.